his new memoir, America, A Redemption Story, U.S. Senator Tim Scott says his family went from picking cotton in South Carolina to seeing him become a U.S. Senator. The Stahl High School graduate says he is unwavering in his faith, excited to encourage bipartisanship and unapologetic for voting based on what he believes is right. Senator Scott, we are talking about the release of your book, America, A Redemption Story, and you say in the book, the American dream isn't a thing of the past, but a miracle of the present. What do you mean by that? Well, for me, I tell you what, when I was a kid growing up and nearly failing out of high school as a freshman at Stahl High School, one of the things I had lost was the hope of a better future. The miracle of the American dream being alive today is I was able to catch the dream. And by catching it, I mean, I was empowered to make my life better because I knew there was a chance that if I kept working hard, a miracle would happen. I experienced that and I want people today all across this country to experience their version of the American dream. It is very different for very different people and that's good news. The good news is the dream is healthy. Better news is you get to define it for yourself and you'll learn how to do that in the book. How do you find time to write? I mean, do you actually sit down and put pen to paper when you're writing? I do some, but I like, I love using the recorder. Oh. And your notes app is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so thankfully I had a, a, a good team that helped as well, but I, I spent a hundred hours recording and then trying to transcribe it, going back and forth and finding the stories that fit the story of America. You know, writing a book is, it's, it's amazing and it's painful. Right. Going through all the memories. And How was your mother? Thank you. That's a great question. <laughs> I, my mother's great and tomorrow I'll have a chance to break bread with her. I spoke with her last night when my, my plane touched down in the holy land of Charleston. And, uh, <laughs> it's always good to know that I'm going to see her soon. And, and your mother is still working in healthcare. Yes. Several decades, I believe now. 49 at any, years at the same place at St. Francis. Francis. Yep. 49 so years. I'm asking her to retire in February of next year because it will be her 50th anniversary and hit that mark and go and go into a, a new a new opportunity. So. Why do you think she's continued working so long? So much of her social life is at work. Her, her friends are there. Her passion is still there and her mission of serving people. Uh, you know, for, for probably 35 or 40 of the 50 years she's been there, she was a nurse's aide, so changing bedpans and holding patients. So that hands-on commitment to helping people experience a higher quality of life, that really gets her up. She loves taking care of people. And so much of what she wants to do is continue that because she's healthy, she's vibrant, and she's able to. So she likes that. I mean, just in going through your book, of course, you, you talked about having to wake up driving your mom to yes. work and, and what a challenge that was. All right, one of the things I say in the book is that uh, there's dignity in all work. I understand the dignity of work because my mother gave me the example. So often leadership is caught, not taught. You don't go to a classroom to learn about leadership. Typically, you embody what you see around you. Uh, and I had the good fortune of grandparents and a mother especially who just taught me the value of work. If you can, you should. If you can't, then you have permission to ask. But if you can and you don't, that's on you. Uh, and that's a lesson of individual responsibility that I got from mom. And that experience and, and watching your mom work influences who you are today. It is the bedrock of 
my entire public service. It's the seven-year-old kid who benefited from a mother who had very little in, in resources, but a overflow of love. And to the extent that I can help others experience this um, the ability to hold on to the American dream, the ability to dream for yourself, the ability to have a goal that inspires and encourages you. For me, it was my mom, it was buying her a house and keeping her comfortable. That powered me for much of my adult life. You actually have endured some of that as well. You talk in the book about being stopped more than 20 times for driving while black. Explain yes. what you mean by that and then how that has impacted your ability to legislate and to enforce laws and to try to make changes. I, th I think the panoramic view of a just America, you have to tell your story. And my journey, while I am emphatically in support of, of our law enforcement officers, I want people to understand that I want the best wearing the badge because I've had the experiences of just driving while black 20 plus times being stopped for no other reason. At the same time, I, I tell that story, I walk through the pain, the misery, and the humiliation that happens in that moment that you experience. Uh, I've had the good fortune with Trey Gowdy to bring African-American leaders and law enforcement leaders from across the state together to have that conversation. And what I walk away with is tremendous respect on both sides of the, that, that aisle, so to speak. When people come together and hear each other's personal journeys, that is so important if we are going to bring together the communities where one serves and one lives. There's not a binary choice in either supporting law enforcement or supporting communities of color. If you want to support one, you have to support the other. And that's why if you just stop with the number of times I've been stopped by, by, while driving while black, then you've only heard part of the story. It's the car accident where the law enforcement officer told me that my mother was going to be so happy that I was alive. It's when your house is broken into, like mine has been, and the law enforcement officers show up. It's when you're walking into places or you're traveling this world and you know that the presence of our law enforcement keeps us safe. If you tell the whole story, then the average person has a reason to be optimistic about the future and the present while we have to wrestle through some of the challenges still in our system. We certainly will talk a lot more about the book, but I also want to touch on some issues that are facing Americans right now. Senator Scott, the latest January 6th committee hearings revealing more details about President Trump's attempt to overturn the election. Has anything come out of the January 6th hearings that made you change your opinion about the president and would you vote differently after hearing the testimonies and seeing additional video from what happened on that day? Well, I, but the, the short answer is no, I wouldn't have voted any differently, number one. Number two, I would say that having been in the Capitol, having been the person that felt hunted for a while, I understand it maybe perhaps better than the people who are sharing their testimonies from a distance. That's a very different experience, uh, one that uh, I think is interesting, but one that is fascinating in that you're getting one side of the story and if you change the channel you get another side of the story. Having been there, I try to do my best to tell the whole story. It was an ugly day. It was a day that we should all regret as Americans. Uh, we should hold the individuals that uh, put us in harm's way as responsible for their actions and at the same time we should understand what President Trump did and didn't do to include 
uh, authorizing the use of 20,000 National Guardsmen a couple of days before January the 6th. So there's a lot that should be covered. You don't get the whole story because unfortunately, it does seem like it's made for TV with an objective already set before the hearing started. So I find it interesting to read parts of it, but I was there so you can learn more about the actual facts on both sides and how we came together and the maybe one of the most important votes I made was the night of January the 6th when we went back out and we affirmed the election of President Biden. Uh, I think that was a amazing and beautiful moment in American history when under duress Republicans and Democrats in the United States Senate went back out there late that evening and decided to finish our job. Do you hold President Trump responsible for persuading or encouraging any acts on January 6th? I don't. I think, I think he could have done some things differently, but the truth is that I hold responsible the people who entered the Capitol on their own volition and put in jeopardy the lives of the police officers as well as the members of Congress and the general public. Uh, we know that former Vice President Mike Pence is widely rumored to uh, make a run for the presidency. He spent a lot of time here in South Carolina recently. The discussion is Washington is really not if, but when. Uh, President Trump will certainly run again. Of the two of them, President Trump and Vice President Pence, who would you support? Well, I think, as you might, might imagine, that I have a great race that I'm in the middle of running here shortly. Presidential politics is just a little too far outside of my sight to, to make a decision. I'm not sure that there will only be two candidates in the race for the presidency uh, in 2024. So we're, I'm going to wait and see how this develops. The first, we'll focus on winning in 2022. In my book, you'll, 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 you, I have a chapter called Tim Scott for President. <laughs> so you may want to read that chapter and figure out what I think about presidents. But uh, it, I, I did read the yes, chapter yes. and congratulations. Thank you. you actually were president at one time. I was, was a indeed. long time ago. It was a long time ago. Stall High School. It's, it's a very important <laughs> chapter in my life. And so I, I think instead of trying to figure out who the next guy will be, I, I better make sure that the constituents of South Carolina are, are, are ready for, for me to continue to serve as, as their United States Senator. And at the same time, uh, as the field develops, as it relates to who the nominee might be, uh, I'll engage in that process after I've secured my own success. Can you describe what has become perhaps a signature legislative um, accomplishment for you, the creation of Opportunity Zones? What are they and who benefits? Opportunity Zones are a place where private capital can find a home and you get a tax benefit for investing in some of the marginalized communities, be it rural or inner city. A classic example of an opportunity zone in South Carolina would be the Agricultural Tech Center in Hampton County where it's going to create 1,500 new jobs and a $300 million investment. This is the first of its kind in South Carolina and one of the first agricultural tech centers in the country brought to you according to the investors because opportunity zones made it affordable and creating 1,500 jobs in a county that probably hasn't seen 500 new jobs in the last few years. Since we're right here on Meeting Street in downtown Charleston, there are opportunity zones oh, nearby? Yes. Absolutely, because if you think about the Charleston Tech Center, 
uh, Morrison Drive to East Bay Street. That area is an opportunity zone. You think about the old ILA, International Lawnmowers Association's building. On their sign that they're trying to sell the property, this is an opportunity zone. So they're using the opportunity zone designation to help market their building. And much of the new construction that you're seeing uh, downtown uh, is in the opportunity zone. The good news is you're seeing new development in areas that had no development. So you're not actually seeing the gentrification that one might consider a part of a new construction. This is actually where there was vacant property, it's now turning into something. So Opportunity Zones affords the community a better quality of life without the gentrification that has been such a persistent problem uh, in the Holy City. But Senator Scott, do you think that there might be concern that gentrification is going on as a result of Opportunity Zones? So you see some of these high rises and some of these um, structures that are going up right now and some people who lived in these communities for many years are being forced out or are moving out, can't afford the real estate there now. So the perception is that it is gentrification and people are lo losing their property. Well, the good news is that we've done the studies uh, about less than 5% gentrification is tied to opportunity zones. That's great news. So the perception is not reality. Second thing is I have legislation that uh, requires reporting requirements to, for all opportunity zone investment and development. So we'll be able to measure it even more so, hopefully in the coming years. The one thing that we know is there's one thing worse than opportunity, it's decay. If you bring no new resources into communities, they continue to decay. And when communities decay, what you see is a tremendous rise in crime, which means that the residents are at greater risk. That's bad for our community and it's bad overall. Unfortunately, we've seen that happen all across this country. There's a way for us to combat that rise in crime, is stabilizing our education system, bringing opportunities into our neighborhoods with more entrepreneurs and more small business owners. Let's talk more about issues facing Americans right now. Yes. And certainly one of those big issues is gas prices. There is a decrease right now. Yes. We are seeing a slight decrease. Do you give any credit to President Biden? Yeah, Carolyn, the one thing I hold uh, President Biden responsible for is the increase in the prices at the pump. Uh, so from, no credit to him for the decrease? Well, if you want to credit him with leading the economy into a recession, because the slower the economy is, the lower the prices because the demand is off, the fact is that I would not, if I were President of the United States, want to get credit for us teetering on a recession. So I look at what happened on the first day he was in office when he shut down the Keystone XL pipeline, which also sent a signal that we were going to have less supply, which drove the price up. And then we stopped the permitting process for American exploration of energy, which drove the price up. And as the Putin invasion started, that increase the price as well, but we had a 60% increase last year before Putin ever entered Ukraine. So the truth is that this administration has done a miserable job managing the prices at the pump. The uh, fact that we're teetering on a recession is why we're seeing the prices come down because the demand is going down. That's not good news. Senator Scott, can you share a myth most Americans don't know about Washington, D.C. And, and what happens behind the walls of government, but you know to be untrue. Can you clarify something that we sure. might be surprised to learn? Yeah, if you watch uh, most 
major news stations, around national news stations, you would think that we are eternally broken and we never get along. No Republicans and Democrats break bread together, they don't pray together, they don't come together. Myth, myth, myth. The fact of the matter is that nearly every single piece of legislation that becomes law is a bipartisan piece of legislation. The fact is that I co-chaired the Senate prayer breakfast with Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, where between 18 and 25 Republicans and Democrats come together Wednesday mornings. The fact is that whether it's Cory Booker or Chris Coons, who I diametrically oppose on 90% of the issues, the 10% where we find common ground, we actually work together on opportunity zones, or we work together on HBCU funding, or we work together on sickle cell anemia uh, challenges and solutions. So you'll find whether it's on issues of the economy where we disagree, we're not going to work much there. But on education, we spend a lot of time working together on those issues. For our rural Americans who are suffering as much as some folks in the inner cities, you'll find that there's a coalition where there's Mike Bennett and I working on job preparedness and readiness, whether it's looking at the SBA and coming up with new strategies for rural entrepreneurs. That's a bipartisan coalition I'm working for, working with on those solutions. So perhaps the biggest myth is that there is no working together in Washington. And when the cameras go off, it looks like we get along pretty good. Senator Scott, I've heard you say that it's been difficult for Republicans to reach African-American voters. Do you have the kind of relationship you want with the African-American community? Of course, the African-American community is not a monolith. It certainly doesn't speak with one voice. Yes. But do you have the kind of relationship you want? I'm always looking to improve my, my, my relationship with my bosses. Uh, the, the voters in South Carolina and the constituents in this state are my, vote, are my voters, but they're also my bosses. So the truth is that whether you vote for me or not, I work for the state of South Carolina and I work for those voters. So I'm always looking for ways to engage. I do wish, Carolyn, that people would judge me based on what I do and not the party that I'm affiliated with. The same challenges that we had as African Americans, we strove or we, we were striving to make sure that we were defined by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. But today, too often, disproportionately speaking, African-Americans may define me based on my party affiliation. They negate the fact that because, when, because of our success when we were in the majority, we, we provided more resources for HBCUs than any other time in the history of the country. We made the funding for HBCUs permanent. We led to the lowest unemployment rate African-Americans have ever seen in the history of the country. We created seven million jobs and two-thirds with African-Americans, Hispanics, and women. We passed criminal justice reform for the first time since 1994, recalibrating and making a more fair justice system. But Republicans and myself, we don't get credit for that because the perception that we're not working on behalf of all Americans, to include African-Americans, has been sold as a part of the story on, on, on too many stations and too many outlets, literally denying the fact that we have made more progress than any other administration during the years that we were in the majority. So what do you do to change that? How do you make your message clear? 
how do you become perhaps a more effective messenger if yes. this is the messenger, the yes. message that you're trying to get across to those who might not understand why you do and why you support some pieces of legislation? Yeah, well, A, you have to be willing to listen. If you want to engage in a conversation, it's really hard to have one. Uh, number one. Number two, I think we're going to have to spend a lot of money marketing and telling people what we've done because uh, getting it out is harder because I, I have roundtable discussions. I bring small groups of folks together all over the state. Uh, and once they leave, they're like, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, I didn't know that. So I, I have determined that I will spend the, use the resources that I have to share the message of hope and opportunity for every corridor of the state, every silo of the state, for in every, every, every demographic of the state. One thing that comes to mind when you describe the fact that perhaps because of your party affiliation, um, you may not win support from some people, but it takes me back to a, a portion of the book when you talk about taking your grandfather to vote, yes. knowing that your grandfather may not be aligned with your particular party. Describe that moment for you and, and what it meant for you to see your grandfather vote for Barack Obama. Absolutely. It's one of the, uh, I'd say two things there. Number one, my grandfather was probably uh, more of uh, an independent than he was anything. He voted Republican on a few occasions. He voted Democrat on a lot of occasions. And one of the one of the times he was most proud was as I was taking him to vote for first time for President Barack Obama. He could not believe that this country had moved to such a place where a black man and a black man named Barack Hussein Obama had any chance to become president. And he reflected on the fact that so many of the leaders in the black community had, were with Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton at the time, and, and that uh, somehow, some way, Barack Obama had overcome all those obstacles. And one of the things I write in the book is, is taking him to vote and, and, and just seeing as I looked over at him after having voted, the, the tears in his eyes. And I only seen my grandfather cry twice in my life. One was that year, 2008, and the other one was when my grandmother died on April 29, 2001. Uh, so the magnitude of progress that he could not believe he'd lived long enough to see was overwhelming him and it overwhelmed me. Senator Scott, you talk a lot about the influence of your grandfather and, and your mother and, and your father. Who else has been a great influence to you and who you've become? Yeah, I've had the blessing of amazing mentors. One of my, my, one of my favorite mentors of all time, of course, was John Moniz, the Chick-fil-A operator that caught me at 15 years old. He taught me a lot about becoming a small business owner. Another amazing mentor, two other ma amazing mentors, was Ed Bryant, or I called him Joe Bryant, who has been on and off the president of the, of the North Charleston branch of the NAACP. He really taught me at nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old, to think for myself. He, he taught me to be compassion towards people who didn't believe the way I believed. He taught me to be, without question, prepared to debate the issues and to defend my value system. Uh, I talked to Ed today and he doesn't always like the way I vote and, and I get it because <laughs> he and I are on two different sides of the aisle, but he's always respected me and always has he been responsive to the needs that I have and to the needs in the community. And I'd say my final one is Al Jenkins. He was a, I think in 1996, he was the Minority Businessman of the Year. He taught me when I started my business, he was my, my only, only investor. He said, keep a low profile. Just because you have it, don't spend it. 
invest your money for a rainy day. Because today it might be sunny, tomorrow it might be rainy. Make sure you're prepared for the rain. I think we need hope in this country. I think we're so, we almost have a question mark behind people who don't feel comfortable to us. That's not good for the soul of this nation. And so I wanted to go through in my life and the ugly parts and the amazing parts, but tell the whole story where in one place you can find both sides of the ledger. Uh, my life has been, I've benefited from amazing mentors who philosophically or ideologically disagree with me, but they mentored me along the way and taught me to think for myself. Mm -hmm. That seems to be missing. Is that a big part of it for you, that last sentence? Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, that's what I try to do as an elected official. Help whomever you can, whether they like you or not. My job isn't to make you like me. My job is to serve you. And sometimes it's a little uncomfortable for both of us. Uh, sometimes you're, you're, you're working with folks who are just diametrically opposed to you. But in the end, that's what service is about. The, the whole Matthew 5:44, the lesson of Mother Emmanuel, isn't you loving people who, who, who make you comfortable. You, you pray for those who persecute you and you love your enemies. That's a call that is beyond us. And that's part of the reason why I think we've succeeded as a nation and we've succeeded as a community and we were able to overcome after Mother Emmanuel because we came together. That story needs to be told more, not less, in this country. I spent a lot of time talking to people who didn't vote for me. Mm -hmm. I spent probably more time talking to people who did. But I spent a lot of time talking to people who didn't vote for me because I want them to know what I did and what I haven't done. And they don't like me at the end of the day or they'll, they don't support me at the end. That's okay. At least they know I tried. And when you look at, for example, uh, the vote of Ketanji Brown Jackson yes. for the U.S. Supreme Court, and I know that you probably got a lot of flack, a Absolutely. lot of concern about why would you not yes. give an African-American woman an opportunity yes. to be on the U.S. Supreme Court? How do you respond to questions about why you would not support her? Well, the, the, the first thing I say, I didn't support her for a lower court, so no one should be surprised that I didn't vote for her for the Supreme Court. Number one, number two, most of the people who have, are offended by me not supporting uh, Judge Jackson for the Supreme Court also didn't support me as I became the first African-American ever elected to both the House and the Senate in the history of the country. None of them have taken a look at the 25 African-American judges that I voted for or the five African-Americans who, who have had secretary positions in the Trump and the uh, Biden administration, no one actually takes the time to do the homework to see other African-Americans that I've supported. They just look at her because she's the one that has been sold as the one vote I didn't vote for. And she philosophically is disconnected from what I think is in the best interest of the country. Very smart, very kind, very gracious person. But from a judge, I want a justice that represents what I believe is the future of the country from a judicial philosophy not from a diversity perspective. Senator Scott, when you walk into a room, do you immediately know if you are being welcomed and if uh, hearts and minds and ears are open to, to what you will share? Absolutely, absolutely. You can feel it when you walk in the room. Uh, I've been in rooms recently with you that were harder than other rooms without any question. But once again, you know, for people who want to be judged by content, not uh, superficial characteristics. It's hard to do to for others what you want them to do for you. 
Uh, it's that kind of divide that I think uh, is soaking too much of the American consciousness with division and polarization. And in fact, if we would just give people on the outside of our organ, of the outside group the same kind of deference we give to our inside group, our nation would come together very quickly. What do you do when you meet that kind of challenge? It depends on how, how, what kind of confrontation it actually is. If it's just a nonverbal confrontation, that people, whether they are giving you verbal cues that you're not welcome, you go where you're not invited. I'm not going to not show up because you don't welcome me in. I think it's my responsibility to be there whether you, you invite me there or not. If I can add value to something, I'm going to show up. More times than not, the fact that I show up, people have a greater level of respect, even if they don't appreciate my position on some of the issues, as they have heard it. But 95% of the people who give me the stink eye, so to speak. <laughs> Senator, you just said stink eye. Well, you know, I am from North Charleston, so people give me the stink eye. And here's what I've learned, that they have no clue why they don't like me. It's just their perception. They have actually very, very little information. And when I talk through some of the things that we have worked on, literally, their, their answer is, I didn't know. I didn't know. Why it's do you believe someone should pick up this book, America, A Redemption Story? You, we all need to know that failure isn't fatal if you don't quit. If you want to figure out how to overcome the obstacles in your life and turn them into opportunities, read my book. Second thing I'd say is that if you believe that the American dream has been shaken or may not be alive and well, if you, by reading my book, it will restore your hope that all things are truly possible in this country, even when you start on the wrong side of the tracks uh, in abject poverty. The best is yet to come. The third reason is if you want to see a more unified country, the key components to that unity is in the book. Thank you so much for being so generous Absolutely. with your time. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Let's Talk. Let's Talk is produced by Eric Johnson. I'm the host, Carolyn Murray. We welcome your comments and advice on our podcast, so please write a review and share the link with others. Thanks again for listening to Let's Talk. Goodbye until the next time.